like I never liked being called an addict. I hated it because I thought if I'm an addict, you know, I'm only, I'm 13 years old. Does that mean I'm an addict for the rest of my life? Does that define me forever? If, am I some, am I anything else? Am I Tiffany the you know, outgoing person, or am I just the addict? Tiffany Tolke was a rebellious teen who started using meth in the eighth grade. A caring teacher helped change the course of her life. I had this one teacher who just, he came in and he gave me the attention that I needed. And he, I mean, I got five minute Tiffany time before civics class and he really reached out to me and was like, hey, like, I'm here for you. Then, a tragic personal loss involving mental health and addiction propelled her into a new arena, that of helping educate young people and develop social and emotional learning curriculum in schools. Now, she's completing a degree in addiction studies and psychology. She shares her incredible journey in this edition of Grieving Out Loud. Tiffany, thank you so much for joining me today. I really uh, enjoy getting to know you a little bit. You've joined the Emily's Hope Education Curriculum Committee. Your background is really interesting, and I think people can learn a lot from your personal experiences, as well as how you're trying to help kids, too. Um, So thank you. Yeah, I'm so honored to be here. Let's start off talking a little bit about your history. So your use of substances started so young. Yeah. Yeah. It started in fifth grade with, uh, you know, the smoking cigarettes. And then in sixth grade, probably went into marijuana. But it was the meth that I started, which was in about eighth grade. Now, let me just tell you, that is shocking to hear of an eighth grader doing meth. How common is that, do you think? You know, I don't think it's too common. Um, I think they're they're around it and they're introduced to it, or at least they see it. Um, but I spend a lot of my time with older people and really met those people through my time um, sleeping on the streets and in trap houses. I'd, I'd run away from home a lot. So um, that's kind of how I met that crowd of people. And they were way older than I was. What was going on in your life in fifth, sixth grade? Or what was going on with you? Um, You know, sometimes I have a really hard time opening up about this because um, I don't ever want to put the blame on my parents. Um, we have a really great relationship and have really grown close in the last 10 years. But um, I think it really comes from a place of, you know, my father uh, disciplined us in a way that was kind of violent. And, um, you know, in his defense, um, I think it's generational, right? I don't, I don't blame him for that. Um, I think that's just what he knew and what he thought was right. And I think especially back in those times, it was pretty acceptable. You're talking about corporal punishment. Yeah. And I grew up in that kind of home too, where my father was the disciplinarian yep. and believed in corporal punishment. And as you said, I'm sure it was generational. Mm-hmm. We've learned a lot and we've changed probably our parenting. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, from those experiences, but I get what you're saying. How, however, in my case, I, well, maybe I experimented with like cigarettes or something in fifth or sixth grade, you know, but it didn't stick. Right. I mean, I didn't like it. It wasn't something I wanted to keep doing. 
But in yeah. your case, so so I think when you're physically like beaten in that way, punished, you can feel not worthy. Like yeah. there's something wrong with you. Yeah, and I think there was like a huge lack of emotional connection. There was no, again, generational on both sides. Um, and I didn't really understand that until I got older um, and we started talking about it. And But at the time, um, it was really harmful to me. Not only was I afraid of my father, I also couldn't talk about anything. And and so to me, when I got old enough to where I, you know, I, I'd always been strong-headed. I I was kind of born that way. You're strong-willed. <laughs> yeah, and and I think that was probably hard to deal with. So, but I got to a point where it was like, you know, I'd rather be sleeping at random houses at 12 years old than returning home to my parents if I did the slightest thing wrong. And my parents are good people and they they always instilled in us to to be compassionate and empathetic and to take care of the underdog and the, the less fortunate. But and and when you look at like the Maslow, I think it is hierarchy of needs, I had all of those things. I had the clothing, the food, my mom cooked home cooked meals every night. Um, I had everything I needed, but what, what I didn't have was that emotional conversation, that connection. And so that's really where like my work and everything nowadays comes from. And I just remember thinking back then, I, if only somebody would just listen to me, if, if you, they would just take me seriously. I'm, I know I'm a kid, but I have these feelings and these frustrations and I want to be heard. And I just felt like I wasn't. And so I retaliated. And I um, I think between the ages of uh, 12 and 14, when I got my juvenile record, because I was writing a book, um, I had 11 chins filed against me between that time period. That's a lot. Yeah. So you were constantly getting into trouble. Yeah. And what kind of trouble was it? It started out with running away for days on end. And then, you know, I'd get child in need of supervision charge on me. And and then I got put on a 90-day probation. And, you know, once you're in the system, it's pretty hard to get out. And so... I how, now, how did your parents, because if your dad was a strict disciplinarian, like my dad was, I mean, he would have killed me. <laughs> <laughs> I think I oper- I think I didn't go your route out of sheer fear. Yeah. You know, but I completely understand what you're saying about not having your emotional needs met within your nuclear family. Yeah. And not really being seen or heard as a... Yeah individual as a human being as a person yeah and I I think I I just heard from a previous podcast when you mentioned sensitive I am a sensitive person and so those things really got to me you know I was really bothered by them and I always wanted to connect with somebody you know I knew just in family conversations that there were maybe a couple people in my family who had had the same path as I did but we didn't talk about it. And I just remember really wanting to know. I wanted to know that I wasn't alone and that um, people in my family had had these experiences and to connect with them. And it just just wasn't there. So you were getting in trouble as a young teen. And were you getting in more trouble at home because of that? No, I think that's really kind of when it stopped. When I started 
When I started getting involved and I was on probation and I was in and out of JDC, yeah, we'd we'd get in arguments and there still was no emotional connection there. But the the spankings and the the fear stopped because I think he just started I just kept reiterating like this is why I'm doing this. Oh, you, you know? told your parents. You yeah. knew. Yeah. Now I think that's very insightful that as a young teenager you knew the reasons you were rebelling the yeah. way you were. Because I don't I think Emily was a very rebellious young teenager, had gotten into the system, had gotten in trouble uh, with drugs at a young age. But I never had a good explanation as to why from yeah. her. And yeah. I couldn't figure it out. You know, I had been more the helicopter parent and more the constantly <laughs> trying to meet all her needs type parent. And I didn't understand, you know, the reasons that she was acting out in the ways like you were acting out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I don't think it's that way for everybody. But I do think, like, I'm the same way. I'm, I'm maybe too much on the other side with my son. You know, I... I was trying to replace what I didn't have. It's like, well, sometimes maybe I don't want to know all these things. <laughs> I get that. You try to do but, it the opposite just to rewrite the script, right? Yeah, yeah. So so you're acting out. You're in and out of juvie or whatever, and meth comes into play at yeah. eighth grade. I mean, I just think of how tender and young you would have been in your brain. Yeah. I remember not wanting to engage. In and these the are older drugs. kids. You're around older kids. Yeah. I mean, I was, you know, I can't remember how old you are in eighth grade, but. Like 13. Yeah. I was 28 year olds, 30 year olds. I mean, that was quite older. And I had met these two guys. And, you know, at this point, some of my friends were already engaging in this stuff. And I, I just thought, you know, I'm not really interested in trying it. Like I don't think I would ever shoot up like I just that's not really my style but then you know I had such a matured body in fifth grade going up and I had a nickname of ghetto booty and that really bothered me I had you know curves and I was um you know more developed and and so I thought you know I started seeing that my friends were losing weight and I thought well if I can lose weight with it then why not? And so that's when I really um, started using it. And and I would I would get kind of the opposite effect of everybody else. And that's kind of when I started dis- discovering that maybe I had some sort of ADHD. Right. That I was just going to say that cause, yeah. because it's a stimulant and stimulants on, on kids with ADHD calms them down instead yeah. of hyping them up. And is that how you felt? I'm not calmed down. Yeah. I never I didn't talk. Um, I wasn't up cleaning all the time. I wasn't um, the things you hear. Yeah, yeah, the things you hear. Right? Yeah, and so, and I'd always been a child that's like, you tell me something, and it's like, mm, I don't really believe that unless I try it. Like, I always wanted to try. And you weren't once. afraid. No, I wasn't. Now I am. Like, I'm terrified of what these children. Yes, of course. But one try, and it, and you're you could be gone. So, but that just wasn't the fear back then. Right. Right. Um, exactly. So were you using meth on a regular basis after this point? Yeah. And so then, so I had been put on an ankle monitor uh, in eighth grade. Yeah. So my whole eighth grade year, I was on an ankle monitor. And then when I got off is when I started using. (laughs) Yeah. There's a lot of trauma in, in between all of this kind of starting in fifth grade. But in eighth grade, the summer after eighth grade, I was dating a 28 year old who was also a dealer 
at that's time. illegal yeah it was very illegal and nobody knew and i was very good at lying oh, about my age you hit it yeah mm-hmm. i've yeah i very much hit it and um and um but soon it would come out that that's what was going on when my aunt at the time and she was like the closest person to me um she decided to take me on a trip out to Oregon and um you know I had like a picture of my boyfriend with me and at this point you know it's three days into our trip and I haven't had any meth and I'm you know kind of freaking out and she notices the picture and she asks me about it and immediately she gets upset and and threatens to call my probation officer and my parents and so when I arrived to my grandma's house um, I just remember we got in this physical fight and I just said horrible 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 things um, to my aunt my grandma and then well you're coming off of meth you had been regularly using meth yeah and then the next thing I know a family member who I'd never met before shows up and I'm off doing meth in Oregon with him and it was, oh my goodness. Um, yeah, so this is a summer after eighth grade. And during this point in time, my parents had bought a house um, 20 miles south of town where my boyfriend at the time happened to live. Um, and so my aunt ended up leaving me in Oregon. Um, and I don't blame her for that. I was, again, probably demanding not to return home with her after that but that was the first time in my life that somebody ever left me um abandoned me because of my choices and it really affected me and even till this day um it's still something I struggle immensely with because I I don't understand I was so young and I was making some pretty horrible mistakes but so so part of me getting to where I'm at today was constantly like trying to show her that I was better than that. That was my motivation to, to keep going. But, um, so I flew back from Oregon, um, for the first time on a plane <laughs> to a new town, um, left all my friends. I never got to say goodbye to them here. I remember my mom, she, after all of that, because it was obviously chaos, took me to the doctor's. And this is where my, the beginning of my lack of trust um, in reaching out for help kind of started and where I had to kind of figure out how to navigate my own emotions by myself was um, she took me to the doctors and, you know, at this time my parents didn't know that I was really using meth or what was, you know. They knew something was wrong. Yeah. And I just remember the doctor after my mom explaining, you know, she's just been in a lot of trouble, she's struggling. He said, well, it sounds like she has a chemical imbalance. Here's some Wellbutrin XL. And I just thought, wait a minute. Like, <laughs> there are so many other things going on in my life. Like, I don't have an emotional connection with anybody. I feel alone. I'm using drugs and nobody really understands. And they just are going to say that I'm chemically imbalanced and this is going to help. And I just remember thinking, no, I'm not doing that. I have to figure out my emotions. I have to figure out why I'm doing this and and how I can get through this. And that's kind of when all that started. And that's kind of when I, I realized like 
we don't have social emotional learning or how to tools on how to deal with any of these things in school or at home. And if you don't have them at home, where are you getting them? And, and it's really easy for a doctor just to prescribe a medication. And I, yeah. that happened with Emily when I take her to doctors or take her somewhere. Always it was just like, here's another medication. I believe in in the medical world. And I think... Medications can certainly be helpful. Yes. It just can't be the only thing. No, it can't. And that's where I felt like this isn't right. And then shortly later, I there was, you know, a, a huge math bust. And um, I was, next thing I know, I'm in a interrogation room in Sioux Falls. And, and then I had to get hair tests because my probation officer is like, well, okay, you you tricked us. Because at the time, I wasn't smoking marijuana because that stays in your system and you'd fail your UA. So meth I could do because it only stay in your system for three days. Oh. So I could get away with, you know, escaping reality and doing drugs if I did that. And so um, then eventually they had to cut a huge chunk out of my hair. That was pretty embarrassing. And you were how old at this point? Freshman? Freshman. Freshman. Yeah. So just a year later or so. Yeah. I was a new kid in a small town school and everybody knew because, you know, families there just know. And... That was really hard. That Were was you really ostracized? Hard. Yeah. And I wasn't also, I wasn't the nicest person. To you were tough. People. Yeah. You would become hardened, really. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I would, I would, I would leave school and walk home three miles in the rain. It didn't, I mean, the mailman would pick me up and give me a ride on the gravel road. And, um, and I'd still continued, you know, after I got off probation, which was about a year later, I dabbled in it like a couple more times, but yeah, I was doing it every day there for like three or four years. And, um, and then it just got to the point where it was like, you know what? I, I don't think I want to do this anymore. I don't want to be judged for the rest of my life. I don't want to. What changed? Because it wasn't an external thing, right? No person. You didn't stop because of any one person out there. There's something inside of you. Yeah. It was, it was, I think it was that feeling of like, I am not who these people say I am. I just, I'm better than that. I know who I am. I just, I didn't want to be judged as this bad girl. I had had this title of bad troubled girl for years at this point. And I just, um, there were moments of memories of things judges had said to me that were just horrible. There, so did the juvenile system help you or hurt you? Um, or somewhere in between? I think somewhere in between. I was really lucky, um, unlike some of my friends, especially my best friend. You know, I didn't get sent to boot camp. I think that would have been bad for me. Um, but there was one judge in particular, and I, I go back and forth all the time on this, on whether it helped me or it hurt me because I'm just not sure because I still think about him till this day and I still want revenge in the sense of like, I want to prove that I came out of this to you. Like I, I want you to know that like your words hurt me, but also here I am. And that's kind of been how I've handled it going out. Um, but he, you know, kicked me out of his courtroom twice, um, for nothing really. I was wearing a I still remember it, a brown turtleneck 
um, long sleeve with my Abercrombie low rise jeans and my, you know, Abercrombie buckle belt at the time was a big deal. My parents were in there and I think it was because I had gotten in trouble for drinking, but I was with older people. And he called me Hoochie Mama and kicked me out of his courtroom. And he was a very popular juvenile judge. And I just remember thinking, what is going on? You know, why, why is he doing that? And I was just furious, but I knew if I said anything back, you know, I, my hands, my life was in his hands and I couldn't do that. And I, I just remember feeling so calling a young woman names. It was horrible. Never happen. Yeah. And then he brought us back in and then kicked us out again. And my dad tried to get the recording and they wouldn't provide it to us. You know, in the case of Emily, when she was before the juvenile judge, I actually knew the judge in that case and had covered stories and that kind of thing and interviewed him in the past. And so obviously I'm a well-known person. I'm sitting in, you know, a courtroom with my daughter and it sucked. Yeah. Um, But I remember him pulling me aside and saying, hey, you know, how's your daughter doing? And I would say, you know, I'd be covering another case or something. I would say, not so great. I'm really worried. And he would say, oh, it's going to be okay. Kids who are from families, you know, good families who care about them, they come around eventually. I've seen it over and over again. It's the families where the parents are using and the parents don't care. And I think that judge was well-meaning, but I also think he didn't have a good understanding of the drug supply today and the dangers, you know, with fentanyl being in everything and um, and, and and the... how hard the drugs are now is, you know, more than just marijuana and alcohol. And mm-hmm. that always stuck with me, you know, she's going to be okay because her family is yeah. good. Uh, and that obviously wasn't the case. Yeah. So I just think, I just don't think our system for juveniles is really set up to properly figure out what's causing the problem and then treat it. Yeah, I needed counseling. You know, I needed and and I eventually did get into counseling, you know, after a sexual assault and going through that whole court system. Um, but by that time I didn't trust to talk to anybody in my life because everybody had shut me out. And so yeah, I think it was it was really like here we're going to put you in this JDC in the cell and there's no rehabilitation. There's no asking what's wrong. Do I think it's just trying to scare you straight kind of yeah. thing? I think that's what that's what it's based upon. Yeah. Yeah. And that doesn't work. No, and it didn't scare me. I was like It didn't scare Emily either. Yeah. I but I was hopeful that it would. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's like, well, it's like a little vacation a little bit. You know, it's like I can get away from the chaos of life and and just get away from all of it. But so you made this this decision to stop using meth. And I I'm, I was wondering how you feel your meth use over that three-year period at such a young age affected your brain? Or does it still even affect you today? You're 32? Yeah. Sometimes I wonder in terms of like my emotional state. Um, But I think, you know, I was just thinking about this yesterday. I've really spent my adulthood focusing on vulnerability and creating this environment on social media where I show you everything, the good, the bad, the ugly, all of it, and you ride along with it. I think I was trying to think of where that came from because I, a lot of people always say, I don't know how you do that. I don't, I can't do that. And 
I think it comes from I was I was so tired of being judged. I was so tired of people doubting everything. And I I knew in my heart and in my soul that I was a good person. Like I was going to do something with my life and I was going to I was going to help people and and I just got tired of it and I and especially I think in a small town it was so hard and I I had this one teacher who just he came in and he gave me the attention that I needed. And he, I mean, I got five minute Tiffany time before civics class. And um, he really reached out to me and was like, hey, like, I'm here for you. Like, um, he didn't judge you. Not at all. And he saw you. Yeah. I think it's amazing that you had this outside adult influence come into your life. Yeah, at such a crucial time, where your life could have gone mm-hmm. one way, mm-hmm. right? But maybe because of that influence, it went another way. Yeah, it was just like holy crap! Someone believes in me. Like somebody sees me for me and how I am, and and I just, I mean, even now, like thinking about it, he's you know currently fighting for his life in the hospital. But um, your teacher, your yeah. Teacher? And I'm not the only, I, I mean, he is known for this. He is known for seeking out the underdog and and even not the underdog, but being a life coach. And um, later on in life, he'd call me to, to mentor girls and to reach out to people. And um, we'd talk all the time. And I mean, it was really just, it was having somebody believe in me and ask me like, what's up? Like, what's going on and why? And really just it changed everything for me and and then you know I became the school mascot and (laughs) graduated being like you know somewhat liked and um I remember just feeling good about that and I was like I'm gonna keep going with this I'm gonna keep proving to people and I think sometimes when people use um and they they get clean and they think two months down the road why don't the people that left me forgive me yet and I remember struggling with that a lot, but even 10 years later, or now, you know, 16, honestly, I don't know, it's been like 20 years since um, one of my family members left me, but it's it may never come back, and you just can't focus on that. You can't focus on fixing yourself to get those people back, and I think a lot of times people get um, down about that. You know, they're like, why aren't people understanding that I've changed? And then they feel like, well, what's the point in changing if they don't notice? So you made this decision. You really, uh, with the help of this mentor, turned your life around. And it's been such an interesting journey for you since, right? (laughs) Yeah. Um, Because I met you in the context of you're currently a student of addiction studies. Mm -hmm. How did that happen? Well... I've always really been into like psychology and um, I've always had a unique look on a, a drug use, I, as I call it. Like I never liked being called an addict. I hated it because I thought if I'm an addict, you know, I'm only I'm 13 years old. Does that mean I'm an addict for the rest of my life? Does that define me forever? If, am I some am I anything else? Am I Tiffany the 
you know, outgoing person or am I just the addict? And um, I struggled with that for a long time and I, I never liked it. And then I would talk about it with people, you know, on and off on my social media and kind of get a vibe from how people were feeling and started talking about how the environment can really change whether we engage in drug use. And I just kept finding that nobody else really felt the same way I did. And then when I met my boyfriend um, at the time, Spencer, um, he struggled a lot with um, alcohol use and substance use and had a lot of trauma in his life. Do you think there's a reason why you were attracted to somebody like that? No, at the time, he wasn't. I thought it was in his past. Um, you so know, you thought maybe you shared like a similar past, right? Like you yeah. had this in common. Yeah, he had long hair and loved art. <laughs> so yeah, I just loved that. And he was in school for art therapy. He, was, he wanted to be an art therapy teacher. And so we had a lot of things in common. And he was very open about his journey. His mom and him had teamed up and talked about it. And they were great helping him along the way. And it just clicked like he was the love of my life. I knew immediately. I remember a week before he passed, we were talking about it and he just said, I know that maybe like you, you have a, this experience, but I can't just have one beer. I can't have one beer and leave. So he may have been wired differently than you. Yeah. And I, well, the fact that you were able to just stop meth at a young age and not go back to it. I've noticed is really unique. Yeah. 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 I think that is unusual. Yeah. So Spencer told you he had difficulty. Yeah. And, I th- you know, I think had I used a needle when it came to meth, I think it would have been different. I think my body would have been dependent on it, you know, I, versus smoking it, I guess, because you can take so much more um, in that way. And that's why it's also dangerous. Um, you just don't know how much you're taking sometimes. But yeah, so he he just said I can't I can't just go do that and I'm like, "Okay. Okay." And I I really struggled with that. I just really thought, "But if we could change all these other things, is he always just is he always an addict?" You know, I just kept struggling with that and you know, after his passing and I decided to take on the mental health um curriculum. What, can you back up a minute? What happened with Spencer? So um, Spencer and I had gotten in an argument um, because he had relapsed both on alcohol um, and opiates. And I was under the assumption that he was on drugs. And I, you know, at this point, my son was older, you know. So so you had had a a baby. Yeah. You mentioned that because when you were 20. Yep. But you weren't with that baby's dad. No. Right. And then you met Spencer. Yep. Mm -hmm. And so I met. I, you know, I finally decided it was time to date. You know, I think my son was five or six. Um, and Spencer, I'd never met him. We were still pretty early on in the dating, and I had rules, you know, the six-month rule or whatever. And you didn't want to be with somebody who was using, yeah. is you yourself not using and also as a mom. Yeah, and, and that's really where, it, you know, it was me just being like, until you can be honest, I don't want to talk about it. You know, I have to go to bed. I have to get my son up for school. And I wish... You know, wish, wish, wish. You always say that. Um, and you can't do that to yourself. But I wish I would have said we could talk about it in the morning. Um, but I didn't. And I just put my phone on silent, which isn't normal. I usually always try to have the last say in something. And 46 missed calls later, 
I wake up and, um, you know, he just sent a note saying, tell my mom and dad I love them, I love you, and and I just remember waking up and my gut just, I knew. It was raining out, I didn't take my son to school, and I just kept calling him every 15 minutes, and he wasn't answering, and his phone was dead, and his dad's a doctor, it was a doctor at the time, and I was afraid to bother them. I hadn't met them yet, I was set to meet them this following weekend, but for some odd reason, he had given me his mom's number and created this music list on YouTube dedicated to me. And um, there were a lot of signs prior that I just didn't realize. Well, hindsight is twenty twenty. Yeah. And so it was really just our first argument. And um, probably, you know, even though I've gone through all those things it was the first time in my life where I'm like, I don't think I can do this alone. Like, I need help. You know, all those other times I was like, I got this. I can do this. This time, it was the worst thing I'd ever been through. I The guilt that I felt robbed me of everything. And Well, because you'd been fighting. Yeah. Well, as all couples do eventually. Yeah. But especially when you're fighting with the addict over their use. Yeah. So how did he die? He took his life by suicide in his closet. and Was it an overdose, though? No. Okay. No. It haunts me, or it did. But when I called his family finally at 6 o'clock that night and they called the police, the detective called me back, and the first words that came out of his mouth were, you didn't break up with Spencer last night, did you? And I couldn't get that out of my mind. But if someone is going to complete suicide, it's not just one Thing that happens in their life. I mean, did you did you gain an understanding of how is opioid use, those alcohol are, use? Yeah. I mean, it's a, those are depressants. How that a lot of trauma in his life. You know, he was adopted into an incredible family. I mean, they have been. I just I don't know what I what I would have done had I not had their support through it all. But he he opened up towards the end about all the things that he experienced. And I think he really just hadn't dealt, even though they provided him all the tools, everything he needed, he just hadn't personally dealt with them. So how did Spencer's death change the course of your life? Well, I started questioning everything at that point. I started questioning my everything I've ever thought about addiction and drug use and Maybe I didn't know. Maybe I, maybe I, maybe just because I had this experience, I was just one of so many. And maybe I didn't hold the key. I just remember thinking, I'm going to, I need to get schooled on this. I need, I need to know. So it's really what led you to mm-hmm. go into the field that you're going into. Yeah. I think, well, first it was kind of an honor of him and, and my youth days was the mental health proposal in 2019. And then when I realized they were taking me seriously, I thought... Explain what what you mean by that mental health proposal. Yeah, I just, you know, going back all the way to my childhood, right, recognizing that I needed social, emotional, um, emotional connection, um, I thought, I just woke up one day in January and I was like, I'm going to look this up. I don't know what they're doing in schools now. My son was still, you know, in elementary school and I thought, I'm going to look this up. So I looked up some keywords and came across this um, article in New York City 
And I reached out to the editor there and got in contact with um, the head of curriculum in New York City. And it was their mental health curriculum that they did statewide. And I thought, oh, wow, like, this is amazing. Like, this would have been so helpful for me and so helpful for my parents, right? And um, I got to try this. And so I, I called and it just, I'm not sure. It just kind of all rolled out and happened. And within, by May of that year, um, they had told me the curriculum was, or the proposal was accepted. The health course was up for review and that they would do whatever they could and that I was invited to sit in on the committee. And I just remember thinking, I thought this was going to be a five-year process. I thought I was going to have to go to peer. I was going to have to fight with everything in me. That was my dedication. And then all of a sudden it was like, everybody gets it. I'm not alone in this thought. And it was already, there were already things starting in, in Sioux Falls School District, but they had just come out with a grant um, and it was only at certain schools. And I thought, it's not certain schools. It's got to be in every school. And so that's where the curriculum idea came in. And what in. does it teach? Social emotional learning, um, you know, self-regulation, um, really how to recognize your emotions and then what to do with them. Um, I think that's really important for our children. And Well, in all drug uses, or alcohol drug use is a way of coping. Right. I mean, it's a way of coping or avoiding, right. you know, things you don't want to feel. Mm-hmm. That's all it is. So we have so much wrapped around, you know, the idea of an abuser, especially somebody mm-hmm. who's abusing substances, that something's wrong with them and it's, you know, their fault. But when you just break it down to the simplest thing, that's what it is. Mm-hmm. And some people are extremely sensitive. Some people have more overwhelming emotions than others. Yeah. Know? Yeah. And I'm definitely that person. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you've got to be really proud that you were able yeah. to help get some of this learning and teaching into the schools. What What age group are they teaching this? Well, I pushed for middle school and high school and they came back and said, let's do K through 12. Awesome. So I... Yeah, I cry sometimes randomly just thinking about it because 20 years ago that could have changed my life and could have changed Spencer's life and it could have changed all my friends' lives who just didn't have that and needed it. and Didn't have the tools to know what to do and how to cope. Yeah, yeah. And so how does this curriculum give kids the tools? So I think it, it... it opens up the conversation, right, in class setting of it's okay and normal to have these emotions, to cry, to be happy, to be sad, mad. And at what point is it maybe the level of needing help, right, be, to be able to recognize a mental illness um, or, 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 you know, in need of help instead of just three days of suicide prevention, it teaches you how to have compassion, empathy for others and yourself. And to really, you know, when you have something going on versus just going to a drug to cope with it, you sit with it. You sit in that feeling and you feel that. And And it's okay to feel it. And it sucks. (laughs) But it's normal. Mm -hmm. We have to do that. We have to... And I think we are in the middle of a, a mental health revolution like we've never seen before. 
we spend so much of our lives running away from ourselves in yeah. various a multitude of ways, yeah. right? Yeah. Everyone doesn't turn to drugs, but we sure have a lot of ways to anesthetize ourselves in this society, whether it's yeah. Netflix series or Shopping food. Or, yeah. yeah. So I think it's such an important, and, and we have so much anxiety and depression mm-hmm. among young people, especially in the midst of a pandemic. Yeah. And how do you, how do you breathe? Right. I mean, I didn't even know how to breathe. Well, nobody teaches kids mindfulness. Right. And so teachers were already doing that um, before. Yeah. I mean, I I should say nobody was teaching kids mindfulness. I think it is becoming more in vogue now to do so. Right. Yeah. And it's so great. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's, those are basic things that. How to be a human. Yeah. And yeah, it's okay to, you know, cry and and just I'm huge on like sharing that like it's okay to like go through tough things and to sit and to feel and it's important to do that in order to progress mentally physically and emotionally and um so the first year it went into effect my son's a sixth grader and that's where it all really began for me at the same school so it's pretty cool at the same school that you are yeah oh (laughs) wow that's Full circle. Yeah. That that is that's an amazing story. I mean, what you've been through, the experiences in your life. It's like you needed to have all of those experiences to be able to do what you've done right. to affect so many more lives of young people. Right. Including your own son. Yeah. Yeah. That's hard though, right? Like I realize it <laughs> as a parent, how hard I was, you know, and, and I don't blame them at all. Um and I'm very open. It I'm, sounds like your relationship with your parents is much better today. Yeah. 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 And I, I should mention that uh, lots of good things going on in your life. You are yeah. engaged in having your second baby yes. this winter. <laughs> so that is very exciting. Yeah. You seem to have your life all together. Although how many of us really have our lives all together, right? Yeah, I'm a but work what, in progress. What do you want to do with the with addiction studies? What are you hoping to do? Well, my... So I'm majoring in both psychology and addiction and I my focus is more on psychology and like um working I don't know I go back and forth clinical psychology is hard because you you know that saying the baby drowns and you save the baby and then another baby drowns and you save that baby and I think that would just be so hard on my heart um so I thought about social psychology and messaging and then um in terms of like but don't you think it's so important to to really have the background in both because mental health and addiction go, go hand, hand in hand. hand. Yes, yeah. so it's like what is the, the chicken and the egg. Sometimes mental health can spur the addiction and sometimes addiction issues can make mental health issues much worse. Yeah, I just want to be there for people. I just want to help people. I want to You already have. Yeah, I'm trying, you know, and that's I think that's what I'm meant to do and I'm not sure exactly how. That is, but if I could keep going with curriculum, and I'm I'm so grateful to be part of Emily's Hope curriculum. That's amazing. I just sometimes have to stop and think for a moment, like, is this really what's going on? Like, am I really here right now and involved in all these things? You find it hard to believe that this yeah. is how your life has turned out, yeah. considering where yeah. you started. Yeah, it's pretty unreal. But I always believed I could do it, you know? And here you are. And here I am. <laughs> so... I just want to help people. I want to save lives if I can and and hopefully do the same for my son and and instill those tools in him and 
keep it going, you yeah. know? Yeah. I believe that you will continue <laughs> to do that. Thank you so much for joining yeah, me today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining me for this latest edition of Grieving Out Loud. If you're enjoying the podcast, please consider giving a positive review. Wishing you faith, hope, and courage.